we're going to be focusing on our sermon series. Uh, we're calling it Put Your Money to Work. And so it's five weeks all about money. There's five things that we can do with our money. It's earn it, spend it, save it, invest it, and give it. Uh, today we're going to be talking about spending our money. Um, and uh, we talked last week about earning our money, and we landed where we should be content. We should work to earn money. That's good, but we shouldn't strive so hard to try to earn money. It's not that good. Um, contentment is where we want to land. Uh, today, we're going to be asking ourselves, uh, how should we be spending that money that we've earned? And just like last week, we've got a video uh, that we're starting all these sermon series out with. It's, a, it's like pop culture, pop wisdom. What would the world say we should do with spending our money? Uh, it's a little bit longer video, but it's pretty good. Uh, could you guys run that in the back, and then we'll chat about it. We buy things because we think they'll make us feel a certain way. Buy this and buy that so you can look like her and feel like him. But buying things doesn't actually help us truly feel anything except instant gratification. Advertisements sell the feelings that objects might give us. But the truth is, those feelings pass. And then all you're left with is stuff. Our possessions don't define our values and morals or help us understand the important things in life. They feed our ego and create a false sense of self, an identity based off material things sold in a store. Of course, there are things we need to spend money on to survive, to provide, to stay fed and warm and safe. But beyond those basic needs, it's totally up to us how we spend our money. We have the choice. Now we need to look at the way we spend our money because there is a science telling us we will live a happier life by spending it on experiences. Experiences like taking a course, going on an adventure, or picking up a hobby require us to be active, to learn, and test ourselves. They form memories that will stay with us forever to share, relive, and build upon. These memories help us define who we really are, what actually makes us happy, and they help carve out our core values and morals something that a new pair of kicks just can't do. So follow the path that will ultimately give you greater happiness and fulfillment in life, and invest in your experiences. Cut the price tag and go explore the outside world. After all, when you die, all you'll have is your memories. So you better make some good ones. message that they're sharing is a very common message that I hear uh, where uh, we, we choose to reject consumerism and not buy things for ourselves, but rather let's go out and experience the world. This is uh, very common for people my age and younger uh, to want to consider their money. But they, uh, this is like, you know, like a lifestyle blog. They've got like Instagram accounts and uh, their kind of motto or mantra is uh, live freely. Don't think about what other people uh, expect from you, kind of reject norms of society and just do what makes you happy. You know, and, and for them, that means traveling the world and experiencing it with friends. 
Um, there's a lot of things that they're saying that are not bad and actually really good wisdom, like rejecting consumerism. Uh, they also make the connection between how you're spending uh, develops your own identity, your values, they said, your core values, your morals. Um, I think that's very wise. They also talk about uh, wanting to have this eternal perspective or this eternal impact where he said, uh, when you die, all you'll have is your memories, so make some good ones. Um, I might disagree on whether or not memories are forever, but they've got the right idea to make your spending purposeful. Um, they're asking the same question that we're going to be asking. So after you meet your basic needs, how should you spend the rest of your money. Um, we've got, uh, the next few weeks are on saving, investing, and giving. Uh, so we're not talking about uh, where to kind of put excess money. We're talking about spending on yourself. So uh, like what standard of living should we have? Like what should we aim for meeting our needs? What does that look like? Uh, what does the Bible have to say about that? So we want to listen throughout this whole series uh, to what is God going to speak to us. My goal is to present a lot of different passages to you, uh, create different points that I see uh, the entire Bible making, but I really want you guys to be open to hear from God. Uh, our money somehow is attached really close to our souls. Um, and so as God speaks to us about money, he might actually want to do something inside your soul as well. So be open and be listening to that, not just for practical advice, but to know and want to know God. Uh, just want to put another plug in. We have a study guide that has all these videos, uh, has uh, all the Bible scriptures that we're going to be covering for you know, previous weeks and the weeks going forward. If you want to get a scoop on what we're doing or if you miss a sermon and you want to go back or if you want uh, just to, to remember and remind some of those questions we asked, uh, we've got that all out on our uh, our Friday email. There's a little link in there. So if you don't get a Friday email, you can write your email on those little connect cards on these desks. Drop them back. Desks. They're coffee tables. There we go. Uh, no one's doing work on them. You can. Um, but you can drop them in that back black box and then we'll get you on that email list uh, to join us. Where I want to start today in answering this question of how should we spend our money, uh, I want to start with a parable that Jesus told, and it's uh, kind of a confusing parable in Luke chapter 16. Um, but I want to start by doing the end of it, because the end shares Jesus' main point and then how it was received. And so this will help us understand where we're going to go from here. This is Luke chapter 16, verses 13 through 15. Jesus is talking. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, if this sounds familiar to you, uh, Matthew records it in a completely different context. This is within Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount speech. Uh, Luke has it here at the end of a parable. My guess is that this was a common teaching that Jesus would use. Like, he's going around traveling and sharing different messages with different people. And everywhere he goes, he sees people entrapped by money and, and having this desire to follow God and follow money. He says, no, you can't serve both. You can either pick one or the other. So, I imagine he walks around today, and if he's on a speaking tour, we'd probably get this sermon as well. Uh, but here's, here's how it's received in this context in Luke. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. So Jesus is telling this parable within the earshot of these Pharisees that he feels are wrong valuing earthly things, either their money or things that money can buy. Um, he also feels uh, perhaps, uh, like he says, 
they loved money. So perhaps they have, got, have been grabbed a hold too much by money. And so this parable that he's sharing is going to try to uh, help us lose that, right? And to choose to follow God alone and to not allow money to steer us and to guide us uh, in our hearts. Uh, now let's go back and read the entire parable. It's called in, in my NIV uh, titles that they added, the parable of the shrewd manager. Uh, we'll have the, the full text up on the screen. I'm just going to read uh, verse, verses 1 through 13, which connects us to what we just read. So Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told them, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Okay, now when we read this parable, or when we listen to this parable, a couple questions come to mind. Uh, first, I think it's difficult for us to even see how that parable connects with his main point. You know, we're like, well, okay, so you want us to not follow money, but follow God. And now you tell this story about this crooked manager who's like robbing his master and then the master's happy about it. And uh, we, we don't quite understand that connection with how this is supposed to be uh, influencing us, changing our lives and helping remind us to follow God. Uh, the other big one is that question where the master commended the dishonest manager at the start of eight. We're like, how, why? <laughs> you know, because on, on just first glance, our understanding of this parable, it looks like the manager is simply robbing his master because he knows he's no longer going to work there in order to gain favor from them. So he's essentially stealing from his master and being paid out with uh, generosity from these people once he leaves. Um, there's been several attempts to understand uh, what's going on here. I just want to share briefly what it is and then help you conclude to understand the rest of the parable. Uh, one option is just that. Uh, where it looks like the manager is stealing from his master. Uh, the, the only problem is in verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Uh, a master would not commend a dishonest manager for acting this way. He'd be furious and he'd have him thrown into prison. Uh, and yet it seems normal to Jesus for this response to be like, hey, touche, well, well worked, you know, even as you've robbed me of who knows a, a lot of uh, debt that's coming in. Uh, so a couple people want to interpret this differently. They say uh, perhaps there's additional details that Jesus hasn't 
shared, and that's what allows us to understand this passage. For example, perhaps this manager is just eating into his own commission, um, you know, where he's managing all these funds, and so he's essentially foregoing his own commission by writing that off so that the master gets paid fully. He just loses out on his payment in order to receive payment in the future. Um, that, that sounds decent. Um, it just doesn't say that. You know, that feels like a pretty key detail that Jesus has left out. Um, I don't like that one as well, uh, but perhaps if you do, you can, you can believe it. Another one that I read um, in a commentary is you could, uh, you could suppose that perhaps the master has made an unjust uh, debt, or perhaps he's charging excessive interest, which was going to be illegal in that society. And so by the, the manager reducing the debts, maybe he was reducing it back toward what would be more honest or right. And so now the master is exposed and he now can't go back. And so he's like, ah, touche, you got me, you know, but you've also done this for your benefit. Um, again, you're reading too many details uh, that aren't there in the parable for us to really feel good about that interpretation as well. Um, the one interpretation that I like best um, thinks that the manager is acting in both his interest and the master's best interest. Um, imagine if you're a landlord and you're uh, managing a large apartment complex, but there's someone in there that is super delinquent, hasn't paid rent for months on months on months, owes a massive amount of debt. Uh, common practice would be like rent abatement, where you say, okay, look, I will wipe away four months of your rent debt in order for you to feel like, okay, I can get back on a payment plan where I'm paying every month. And it's a tactic you use, so you don't have to evict them, and then uh, you don't have to try to find someone new. You don't have to deal with um, not receiving any income, but you can try to recoup some of that back by forgiving what they're doing. Uh, I think that's what's happening here because you look at the massive amounts of debt that these people owe the master. 900 gallons of olive oil, I read in one commentary, says that that might take... Um, up to three years of one person's labor to pay that off. So my, my guess is you're kind of so far in the hole, and then the thousand bushels of wheat would take up to 10 years in order to produce a thousand bushels. And, it, and on top of whatever, they've got to make for their own living. So my, my guess is these people are so far in debt that perhaps the master hasn't even received any payment whatsoever. And so by the manager going to them and striking their debt down in, in almost a half for one of them, you know, and, and huge reductions. He's enabling them to say, okay, well, I'll start repaying this again. I won't just completely forget about it. And so uh, perhaps the master is now receiving more than he would before. Um, again, you have to speculate as to what's going on, but the vast amount of debt that he's reducing makes me feel like that would be an option where the, the master now says, ah, I commend you for your work. But the point uh, this wasn't a riddle. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus didn't try to say this in order for us to figure this out. His main point is that the, the, the manager has acted shrewdly and that he was looking ahead, right? Because he says, here, this is the, the point for us. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. This is the pivot point where he says, this man used his current situation in order to secure a long-term future. And then he says, the application is for you uh, from now using worldly wealth into then an eternal life. So like the manager getting fired is like us dying, <laughs> you know? And, and so he's saying, use your worldly wealth now in such a way that you will be welcomed into your eternal dwellings. We are supposed to use our worldly wealth 
uh, in order, with, with an eternal perspective, is, is what Jesus is saying. Don't just think in the temporal. This is like what they were saying on the, on the video. Uh, don't just buy the things because that will all go away. Um, instead, invest in something that's going to have an eternal perspective. This is um, common throughout the Bible. Is whenever we're thinking about our spending and what we're spending, spend with an eternal perspective. Um, and what that means is that we devalue the temporal. So the things that we value highly, this is what Jesus says. Here's a, here's a quote that I don't think I've ever seen on a bumper sticker or a t-shirt. You know, like, I mean, this is a solid quote by Jesus, right? What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. You know, it's just, it'd be ironic if you put it on a nice car, right? You know, it'd have to be on like a beater or something like that. <laughs> but that's what he's saying, right? Because people are, don't have this eternal perspective when they're spending their money, they're going to value things that God says, that, well, that there's no value in that. You know, we go back to that, that video and they say, well, traveling and experiences are things that last forever. I think we would have to say, God probably devalues that. <laughs> you know, like that's just gonna lump into that first segment of the video where you, you find out that there's nothing in that either. That just fills you up, fills your ego, makes you feel good about yourself. What we really want is something eternal. So the big question is, well, what does God value then, right? So if I, if I shouldn't spend my money on things that people are valuing or that are temporal, well, what sort of things then does God value? Uh, great question. What does God value most? I mean, it's not things. The conclusion of this parable isn't Therefore, only buy spam. You know, I like there's not things that he's saying you have to buy. It's not things. What God cares most about is the song that Camille was singing. He cares about you. He wants to be with you. This is why he created the whole world. He wants to be with this. Why Jesus died on the cross. He wants to be with you. He wants a relationship with you. That we said last week, right? When you're in the bubble that we call life, what can you take in and out of the bubble? Nothing. Oh, but it's only God who's eternal. God's the one that brought you into life and God is the only one who can take you out. Nothing your money can buy will have any sort of eternal significance. The only thing is our relationship with God. Most important when we consider our spending is our relationship with God. Okay, then, well, how can I spend to maintain a relationship with God? Um, this is the second point that I want to jump to. Wealth paves the path away from God. An uncomfortable truth that I think is all across the Bible, over and over. For example, when God saves the Israelites, this is in the Old Testament, it's the, it's the, the major meta-narrative of the Old Testament, where it talks about he saves the people, he leads them through the wilderness, he provides for them all along the way, right before they enter what, what's called, we call the promised land, where there's uh, a land flowing with milk and honey. They're going to be blessed, wealthy, and enjoy material blessings. This is what God says to the Israelites before they walk in. This is Deuteronomy 8, verses 10 through 14. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. There's this warning that, that God intended for his people to be wealthy. God intended for them to have physical, material blessings. But right alongside, before you have them, I just need you to know one thing. 
Once you have them and you're making fine houses for yourselves, your flocks and your herds are growing, your gold and the silver are coming out of your ears, I just want you to know that then you're going to go astray. That, that there's a path that we're paving that leads away from God, even in the blessing that I am giving you. This, I'm, you, can, you can counter me on this, but when we sit down and we open up our Bible, I will bring you the examples that show that this is a biblical principle. Our wealth paves a path away from God. Uh, I want to share one of those examples uh, that I found with King Solomon. Now, when I was a kid, like back in these classes, learning about King Solomon, uh, they share essentially one story, and that's when he asked for wisdom. You know, God said, I will give you anything that you want, and he asked for wisdom, and God gives it to him, and he's the wisest man who has ever uh, lived on the land. That's, that's, what, that's what you learn as a kid. And then you learn, right, that he got everything else, right? Everything else came after that. He got all the riches. He got everything he could want because he had wisdom. And so I remember reading 1 Kings 10, as a kid, and trying to understand, well, what does this, this passage mean? Uh, and it looks like God's blessed him. First Kings 10, I'm not going to read the entire thing. Uh, you absolutely can if you want to, but I'm going to read part of it. It starts with the queen of Sheba coming. The queen of Sheba is this exotic queen from far away. She comes to Solomon, and she is blown away by his wisdom and by his wealth. She says things like, wow, your people must be so happy. Like, God has blessed you so much. You know, and so after she leaves, uh, she receives gifts. She gives a ton of gifts to Solomon. There's this entire section. Again, my NIV editors call this Solomon's Splendor. This is 1 Kings 10, verses 14. I'm going to read all the way down to 29. I think, yeah, okay, great. We've got it up on the screen. I just want to read to you. This is, this is a section in the Bible that came after this great visit, after the wisdom. Uh, Solomon had just built God's temple. And so in my mind, I read, wow, God really wanted to bless this guy. It says, the weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents, not including the revenues from merchants and traders and from all the Arabian kings and the governors of the territories. King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. He also made 300 small shields of hammered gold with three minus of gold in each shield. The king put them in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. Then the king made a great throne covered with ivory and overlaid with fine gold. The throne had six steps and its back had a rounded top. On both sides of the seats were armrests, of, of the seat were armrests with a lion standing beside each of them. Twelve lions stood on the six steps, one at either end of each step. Nothing like it had ever been made for any other kingdom. All King Solomon's goblets were gold, and all the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's days. The king had a fleet of trading ships at sea, along with the ships of Hiram. Once every three years it returned, carrying gold, silver, ivory, and apes and baboons. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift, articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons and spices and horses and mules. Solomon accumulated, chari accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Ku. The royal merchants purchased them from Ku at the current price. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the Arameans. Whew. It's like you couldn't think of a way to write that he was more rich than they just wrote. You know, it's like, they, like 
They're, they're running out of words to describe how rich Solomon was. And so I read that as a kid, right? You know, and they taught me, you know, like after you read the passage, try to say like, okay, what's God telling you? And so it's like, okay, well, sure looks like God was pleased with Solomon. You know, he blessed him with wisdom. He, he, he allowed him to gain all this wealth. And this is a blessing. So God blesses his children sometimes with extravagant material wealth, you know, and chalked it up. On I go. Keep reading next few chapters. Uh, that's until, until I, I stumbled across a passage in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, there's rules and regulations for the future kings. Uh, Deuteronomy was where the passage we just read. Right before they enter this promised land, uh, the King Solomon happens after they've entered the promised land, settled there for a while. There's rules about what the king is supposed to do. Look, this is, this is what it says in Deuteronomy 17. If I can get there. 14 through 17. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. Solomon checks that box. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Solomon checks that box. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who's not an Israelite. All right, that, that sounds good. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself. Yeah, not so much. Or make the people return to Egypt. Ah, yeah, he did grab them from Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. You say, okay, well, at least it didn't mention anything about wives. Read the first few lines in chapter 11. It's about a 700 wives and 300 concubines. Yeah, he, he, he's a big miss on that. He must not accumulate, accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When I read this, it reminded me of that passage about Solomon. So now when you read this whole section about King Solomon. If you have an understanding of the law, you know what God requires of the kings, you're reading it with a dark foreboding cloud just sailing right over this whole parade, this whole party, right? It starts out, did you, did you guys catch this? The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents. Did you guys caught that, right? All right, you guys know what 666 is, right? Of course you do. It's made it into pop culture. This is like Satan's number, right? 666 in the Bible means almost perfection, but you've missed. You're fake. You're a fraud. That's not real, right? 777 is perfection. That's God's number. 666 is a counterfeit, but trying to aim for it, right? That's a tip-off at the very beginning. You should have felt like, ooh, that feels wrong. Why, why not 667, you know? Like, or why, why not like 589, you know, or something? Like, just take something less, right? 666 talents, that's a fake, that's a fraudulent blessing. That's not perfection. That's, that's, a, that's a counterfeit. And then you start reading about how gold and silver is just flowing out of their ears and you're like, oh, no, 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 no. You know, that can't be, that can't be, this is not good. And then it talks about he's got, he's got a ton of horses. Let me tell you about how many horses he has. You're like, no, that was another thing you weren't supposed to do. Just tell me you didn't get them from Egypt, right? Yeah, you imported it from Egypt at the current price. You know, and you're just like, nah, this is bad, this is bad. And then chapter 11 starts, 700 wives, 300 concubines. You're like, Solomon, what, what are you doing? You're literally disobeying God. You know what he's doing? He's walking down that smoothly paved road where he says, wow, this is nice. God gave him the ability to, to develop wealth, to spend wealth, to live in a standard of living that was matched to none. God gave him that. That was God's blessing. Solomon's choice was to take the path away from God. You want to see how it ends for him? Read the rest of 11 and 12. There's literally a civil war as soon as Solomon dies. That wealth of God's blessing 
is ripped into two. A, a massive moment for the whole history of our faith. Because, well, that path, it's nice. Having wealth is slippery. If you, if you do a study and you just write, who, who are the closest people to God in the Bible? Write them all down. Write them all down. And then say, uh, do they have a lot or a little? For every Abraham that you have, who definitely had a lot and was definitely close with God, I can come up with probably three Elijahs, Peters, Pauls, all the prophets of people that didn't have a lot. Now, not to say that you can't have a lot and be close to God, but even the people who are close to God, you can take people like Joseph or Daniel, even David, who had a lot and were close to God, I could probably make an argument that they were closer to God or the Bible reveals that they're closer to God in their times of not having than in their times of having and blessing. Again, I don't know, is it wrong to have money? I don't know, but wealth certainly paves a path that goes away from God. So you just have to be intentional to say, okay, I don't want to go down that path. I want to follow God. I want to follow Jesus. That's my goal. The last passage I want to land on is Proverbs 30, which expresses this sentiment. Proverbs 30, seven through nine. Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. This is a, a proverb, it says, from the sayings of Agur. Agur is some wise man, you know, maybe not quite as wise as Solomon, but he definitely had some good things to say. Um, I find it interesting. So what's his request? He prays to God and he says, keep falsehood and lies far from me, probably uh, in his own heart, but then also from the people around him. Uh, and then also, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me only my daily bread. You know, there was a prayer when I was in high school uh, that was turned into a book that became a bestseller called The Prayer of Jabez. You guys ever heard of that? Uh, the, the thought of this is from 1 Chronicles 4, 10 and 11, I think. It's another short little prayer that someone who is blessed by God prays that God would expand his boundaries and keep him from the evil one or keep him from pain. Um, and the book's premise was that because this is in the Bible, we can confidently come to God and ask him for material blessings. It's funny because I missed the prayer of Agur. You know, that, on the bestseller list, I never saw that one here. You know, why, it, it, look, when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he didn't echo the prayer of Jabez, he echoed the prayer of Agur. How come no one's praying this? Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. That's in the Bible. This gives us confidence to ask God not to give us too much. Right? And in fact, only give us to meet our daily needs. Ooh, yeah, I don't, to be honest, I don't pray this one. <laughs> yeah, why not? Right? Is there wisdom in it? Is there truth in it? I want us to see why he says, give me neither poverty nor riches. It's funny, I had a seminary professor who wrote a book called Give Me Neither Poverty Nor Riches. It's really good. Not a bestseller, but it's really good. It talks all, all about money. Uh, otherwise, I may have too much and disown you, and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal, and so dishonor the name of my God. What's foremost in Agur's mind is the honor of God. If he has too much, he might dishonor him in his heart. If he has too little, he might compromise his morals and now dishonor him before others by stealing. Here's the point that I want us to understand. When we talk about or think about how should we spend our money, yes, in eternal perspective, there's a warning, wealth paves that pathway from God, but your spinning tells a story of God. Now, a story might not be external, right, where other people can see, right? It's not like, hey, show me, like, you know, the, the show me your bank account and I'll show you what you value. Yeah, that's true, but you can't tell what story they're telling about God. 
but it might tell it internally, right? It's, it's a guru who knows who is the Lord, right? Otherwise, I may have too much and say, who is the Lord? I tried to ask myself this question. What does my spending tell about God, right? What story is my spending telling? You're like, I don't, I don't know. You know, it's, it's a weird question, you know, like I give money to the church, so I like God, right? But then you're like, okay, but I kind of spend like everyone else. I have a mortgage, I have cars, I have a family, I spend a lot on them. We travel some. Every once in a while we go out to eat. Like, I kind of probably spend like you guys. Like, well, everyone, the world. So I was like, well, I, maybe I'm not, I mean, I'm not really telling a, a strong story. You know, it's not a loud story that I'm telling with my money. And then it's like, okay, well, is that a problem? Right? Like, is that a, is, am I okay with that? Or is that a symptom of saying, who is the Lord, right? That I'm just blindly following the standard of living that everyone else is setting around me saying, well, this is just what you do. You know, you have a mortgage, you have kids, you pay for your kids for things, you just kind of live life normally. Well, what story are you telling yourself then, right? Is God important? Yeah. Or are you separating God, right? So I have this life. This is just kind of what I do. And God's over here. When I need him, we go, you know, or like he's the, he's the church God. He's not like money God. You know, like that's, we keep these things separate. I feel like, well, that's probably more my posture. And I, I say God is actually concerned with how I spend my money. Not what I spend my money on, but what story am I telling about him? Here's a couple things, I think. Like, hmm. When, when I was, okay, when I, when I was preparing this sermon, you know, you do the little, like, how rich is Douglas County kind of Google search. <laughs> you get some uncomfortable results. Like, we're in the top 10 of median household income in the United States. They're not 10%, top 10, you know, just flat rate 10. There's, there's this one ranking that talked about how healthy you are, how, like, uh, how much government funds are available, like how close you are to parks and libraries and everything. Douglas County finished first in the nation. And this like, how like well off are we was essentially what the, what the measure was trying to make. And it just feels like, huh, you know, like here, I, I see these points. Well, here's, here's the points I'm looking at. And just feel like we're going to have to take some intentional steps to ensure that we aren't just walking down that smoothly paved path away from God, that we're not letting our excess lead us to say, ah, who is God anyway in our hearts? I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I have a couple suggestions that we can try. For one, we can celebrate with our money. Celebrate God. You look at the Old Testament, it's chock full of all different celebrations, uh, week-long parties for the entire community to come and to spend their wealth in thankful appreciation for what God has done for them. And in this way, they would not forget the Lord your God, which is what in Deuteronomy they were warned about happening. So I recommend anytime that you're going out to eat, make it a celebration of God. Anytime, what if you made your monthly mortgage payment or your rent payment and you just decided that once a month we're going to have a party for God. We're going to buy steaks and we're going to grill them up because God has given us another month to live in this location. Praise God, what an amazing place that we live in. But if we did these things, then our spending is on the exact same things that perhaps we're already spending. It's just telling a story that we want to tell about God and not forgetting him off to the side completely. Another suggestion is write yourself a little prayer. Every single time that you, uh, you swipe, insert, or tap your card, you know, you say to yourself, you know, it's like uh, before meals, it's become tradition that we say a prayer. And it, because you do it three times a day, you probably have some 
regular rhythm of what you say, if not the exact same things of what you say, write yourself a little prayer of gratitude whenever you're clicking submit order, you know, online. You know, something that can appreciate genuinely from your heart, thank you for this ability, for, for this blessing that I get to live within. There isn't anything wrong with wealth. God wanted to bless his people with wealth. It's just careful because that wealth is gonna lead you right away from God. Let's do things intentionally so that we can keep God as a focus and we can tell the story to ourselves, if no one else, who God is to us through our spending. You know, if we've got these first two weeks down, you know, that we're spending with an eternal perspective, we're devaluing things of this world, that we, we recognize that wealth is paving this pathway from God, so we're intentionally pulling back perhaps even our standard of living. We're living under our means, right? We're not living up to what we can afford, but even less. And we're intentionally adding these practices so that we can tell God a story of ourselves. And we're content with it all, right? We're not striving to gain more money. We're just content with where we're at. If we're doing these first two weeks well, it's going to open up the next three weeks that we talk about. We're going to have excess money, but not our money. This is God's money, God's money that he has blessed with us. How do we save it? How do we invest it? How do we give it? That's what we're going to discuss in the next few weeks. But if we follow these first two weeks and we're content, we're living well within our means, we're telling these stories of God, we're going to find exactly what those high on life people were trying to find in the video. Freedom, peace, enjoyment, happiness, fulfillment because we're going to actually have the thing that gives us life, not just things that we hope will. Let's pray. Dear Lord, oh, thank you for your love for us. I thank you that you care for us. We, <laughs> we bring a heavy burden to you with the money and the expenses and the concerns that we all carry uh, day to day, week to week, month to month. Uh, there is a lot of money in our economy, a lot of money uh, exchanges hands, our hands, uh, every day, God. We want to invite you into that. I pray that you would guide us, show us your love. I pray that you would give us the proper amount of correction, help us not carry undue burdens of shame or guilt. But I pray that you would express your desire to be close to us. And I pray that our spending would reciprocate, reciprocate that desire to be close with you, God. May you be glorified in how we spend our money as individuals and as a church. In your name we pray, amen. All right, I'll only give you five minutes to do discussions this Sunday, uh, but there's some really good questions. Um, I hope you already have real good questions that God's placed on your heart as well. First, what things are worth spending, uh, spending money on to you? Uh, two, is there a single godly standard of living we should all choose to pursue, or does it differ based on uh, particular situations? Three, what does your spending tell of God? And lastly, what other spending practices tell a good story of God? Brainstorm with me, what can we do? Uh, pick your favorite one. Let's take maybe five minutes, discuss around tables. So turn to your neighbor, and then I'll close us out in about five minutes.